Choose the now. If there's people you haven't expressed your gratitude to, do it now. If you've been living at level six on your 10-point energy scale, change your movement, focus on purpose, change it now. If you've been using your memory to see instead of your vision to see, you can change it now. And now is the only place where we move forward in our lives. The single most important principle that I believe in and teach is what I say, another way of putting that is to, to be fully present. I call it the gift. Now, what does that mean? When you're fully present, 100% of your mind, body, and spirit is actually with the person you're with where they are now. So welcome back to the podcast with myself, Owen Walker. Today's session is with Brian Biro on breaking through. Brian is uh, the author of 15 books, including his bestseller, Beyond Success, and The ROI of Kindness. With degrees from Stanford University and UCLA, Brian has appeared on Good Morning America and CNN. He was recently honored as one of the top 10 interactive keynote speakers in North America and one of the top 60 motivational speakers globally. Fundamentally, Brian Byro is known as America's Breakthrough Coach, and it's an absolute pleasure, Brian, to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you, Owen. I, I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. So you've got a, an absolute prolific online um, content and some fantastic YouTube videos, which I would counsel everyone listening to this to go and look at. But one of the things that really comes through around your, your teaching on leadership and influence is the responsibility that influence comes with. Could you maybe speak to um, why it's important important to instill responsibility with influence? And also maybe if you could notion towards some of the greats you've seen deploy their skill of influence. Oh, I love that. I, you know, Influence to me really comes from passion, um, from inner, inner passion. Um, and, it, and it is really about letting go of the need for approval. Um, when you have a need for approval, you're more focused on your reputation than on your character. But your character is who you are. Your reputation, only what others think you are. And when you make that shift, when you get away from the need for, we all want to be loved. We all want to be appreciated for when we put our efforts in. But when you become easy to impress and hard to offend, then you have a recipe to really influence people because you take away the pushback. Whenever people feel pushed, they have an automatic reaction to push back. It's like a reflex, not just physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And when we, when we influence powerfully, it becomes when we've taken away that, we've turned that pushback into a dance, into an Aikido, um, where we move with energy together. But that starts by focusing on what you do control, which is your effort, your energy, your attitude. And that's when you're going to begin to have influence by who you are. Um, which is the only influence that really lasts. And I also, you know, I'm called a motivational speaker. And, and, and I laugh when people say that I'm a motivated speaker. Um, but motivation is an internal thing. So influence to me is like a spark. It's, we, can, we can create a spark, but the other parties have to be the ones that take that spark and actually turn it into a flame. And so when people come to me after an event and say, boy, that changed me, you changed my life. I say, well, thank you. No, you changed your life, but I appreciate it. Um, that is where they have taken that little spark, which is influence. And then they've created self-motivation. 
Brian, that's powerful. And, you know, that reminds me is, is a quote I heard recently, which is, you know, motivation and inspiration are free, but discipleship or living out the, the words of knowledge from that motivation will cost you everything. And so there's a real, you know, there's, there's, there's the words of truth, which are revelatory to me or to you, the, the words of influence. But living out those words of influence, especially if they aspire to, for you to be your best self, will cost you everything. So the, the word itself doesn't cost you a thing, but living out the word costs you everything. And I think that's a beautiful marriage of the two. Absolutely. Uh, probably the person that had the, the two people that had the greatest influence on my life, one I was close to and one I never met, um, are uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who I never met. And, uh, and John Wooden, who wrote the foreword to my first book. Now, John Wooden, for your audience who may not know who he was, was the, in America, he was the greatest college basketball coach of all time. Um, he was an even better person, better father, better husband, better person. And he was a very gentlemanly, he was the exact opposite of what many think of coach, the guy throwing the chair and screaming and going, he was a gentleman. He was very, uh, very calm, very even keeled. But his influence came from his internal definition of success, um, which is really at the heart of my first book called Beyond Success. And it was that success is peace of mind. And it can only come from knowing you've given the best of which you're capable. In other words, if you have to look outward to know if you succeeded, you don't really know. You're, de you're depending on something you absolutely don't control. And he lived that. And the different, many people may have that those words, but he lived it every day. And therefore, his influence in this gentlemanly simple way same with gandhi very very much not a jump up and down kind of guy but lived his principles as 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 powerfully as he could inside that's why he had such each of them had such tremendous influence on the people around them so brian let's let's focus on coaching for a second because coaching is powerful actually so in in your formative years if i'm if i'm right to believe you were a swimming coach so teaching swimming to a number of students and you've spoken candidly i think in the past brian i've certainly heard you speaking around coming to the end of yourself in your own training you know and pushing yourself to to, to the very end of your own fibers in, in in training and or in performance how do you, Brian, bring someone to the end of themselves? How do you get the 110%, the absolute limits uh, to, to, of, of the best out of somebody? Well, that is a really wonderful question. Nobody's ever asked me in quite the same way. I love that. Um, it makes me think a little bit more deeply. So thanks for the question. Um, I think that a couple of things. The first thing is, is that anyone who coaches anything, whether it's a sport, whether it's executive coaching, business coaching, whatever, Never forget, you don't coach that thing. You coach people, right? And for people to get to where they are, can reach their, their highest level, get as close to their, their pure essence and potential, um, is really about the way, about their hearts and their minds. It's really not so much about their bodies. It's not so much what they do. It's the way that they think and the way that they act um, and the way that they believe. And so um, the first step is to really examine people's beliefs, um, you know, if you, what you focus on is what you create. And if you have a belief that is, that is not a powerful belief that's within your control, then you're constantly going to be going up and down. But when you lock in some key beliefs, example, that the past does not equal the future, that competency happens in a moment, which is a foundational belief of, you could call it positivity, you could call it, you could call it optimism. But what that says is, 
That belief, rock solid, says I can get better today. No matter what I did yesterday, I can get better. And so the starting place in coaching is to really examine what do people actually believe? Not just what they say, but what they believe. And when that belief gets strong enough, uh, and the second element that goes with belief is purpose. Uh, purpose is life. You know, if you're not inspired, you're on the way to getting expired. And when, a per when your purpose is strong enough, you will figure out how. I'll never forget in all my years of coaching, and I had a wonderful, wonderful coaching career as a swimming coach, something magical happened to my athletes when they got in relays um, because they had three other people that they, that they knew were counting on them. And inevitably, they performed at a higher level. So if they can do it in a relay, they can do it anytime. It's just accessing that same mindset that says, I have a purpose that's bigger than myself. So as a coach, you're looking to help people discover what is their deepest, most powerful driving purpose? What are their foundational beliefs? And any of those beliefs that are, that are really um, not supporting them to move towards that purpose, that's where you want to begin. And the third is a tricky one for many coaches because coaches love to tell. But if you want to be a great coach today, you've got to learn to ask. You've got to really learn to listen. Coaching is more about helping people discover than to try to give it to them. And as coaches, we want to give it to them. We've, been, we've worked with lots of people. We've done lots of work uh, where we've experienced things. And we want to tell them and give them advice. But until we really understand them, until they learn it themselves, it's just words and it'll bounce off. It'll, you know, there's, there's too many holes in our heads up here. We got to get it into their hearts. Um, and that comes from asking more than telling, because when you ask more than tell, you create, you bring people's self-leadership out. So those are some of the real keys that um, I believe make the biggest difference in being a coach who helps people move towards that, that highest level, access their purpose, really make sure you have beliefs that are, that are empowering, um, inspiring beliefs. And finally, when you get all that together, right, and you have a definition of success that's on the inside, right, then you, and you ask more than tell, you've got a great chance to really help people soar. So you said some really profound things there, Brian. One is around he who has his why can do anyhow. So if you have your why, you can figure out the how with the why. You need your why first. And the other one, which is really profound for me, really is your the seminal point of active listening. And that you have to, as you said, as a coach, actively listen and observe, almost be an anthropologist with people, really. So an observer of people, because... Something I was just talking to you offline about now is about being having an inner critic and my inner critic at the moment, having not just got a job I've gone for is absolutely rhythmically uh, accusatory, accusing me and is eternally negative um people's inner critic athletes inner critic is something you probably wouldn't tolerate from a, a, an external person yet you people tolerate it themselves but you're right as a coach listening to see what their inner critic is see how do they debase themselves when they fail or can they move through failure quickly and make sure it, they, they fall forwards and it doesn't affect their future performance. But it's, it's a position of anthropology. It's a position of observation whereby you can see their inner critic 
And if it's if it's overly active, start to re reacclimatize and start to speak to that critic because they might need affirmation over criticism because they've got their own inner critic, which is barking loudly. Absolutely. You know, uh, and it's the fun of coaching. The fun of coaching is, you know, everyone's different. And how are you going to discover what really helps people um, rise to their potential if you don't if you don't pay attention. I, I took a course at Stanford long ago um, when I was going to college that was called Observation of Children. And it was a very simple course in a way. It was developmental psychology. And for one, one day a week for four hours, we went. We had an experimental preschool on our campus. And we had to pick out one child over a course of what we called a quarter, which was 11 weeks. And all we did was observe that one child and, and not interact with them but simply observe them um, and to try to blend in and be invisible, which sounds hard to do when you're watching somebody for four hours straight, but in that environment in a college uh, area preschool where there are students there all the time, it wasn't as difficult. Well, I picked out a young girl, I'll never forget. Her name was Allison, all right? And she was actually had just moved to the States from Australia. And um, I thought, well, I gotta get my developmental psychology class done. It was the most fascinating Owen class I had ever had. I knew that and I realized that we rarely truly observe people for more than a minute, usually much less than that. And then we go into our vision of them rather than what's actually there. And what I gained from that was what you just hit on the head. I knew more about what really motivated that child. I knew more about what hurt her. I knew what, what teachers should know about their students. Um, and I never spoke to her. Uh, all I did was listen to her and observe her. Um, and I ended up writing a 194 page paper um, for a class that was pass fail. So there was no grade for it. I just was so completely immersed in the power that comes when you really pay attention. And you can only do that by asking and observing. So that's powerful, Brian, absolutely powerful. And what so I wanted to tap into a little bit more is how we get the best out of other people. And one of my biggest revelations recently, Brian, was around reciprocity circuits within the prefrontal cortex. Um, so reciprocity circuits being circuits of generosity almost, whereby we are consciously and subconsciously, Brian, affected by those which are first movers towards us. So for instance, if I buy you coffee on Monday, um, you're probably more preferentially going to buy me coffee on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday just because I am the first mover and I've moved towards you. And, and, and actually maybe within training, being the first mover towards people, being as a coach whereby you offer this, you offer advice, you offer guidance, but more to the point you offer community. And so you're the first mover. And actually those reciprocity circuits in, in the people you're coaching, uh, they see your investment over time and the consistency of your investment. And they move towards you through activation of over the reciprocity circuit. And it acts, so it acts in so many different domains of practice. It moves in generosity and in, in coffee and in, in buying gifts for people, but it might also work within coaching and being the first mover uh, within, within coaching. Does any of that land with you? Oh, and enormously because what, what reciprocity I believe is most um, catalyzed by is caring. It's love, if you want to call it that. 
Um, I'm not the biggest social media guy, but one of the things I've loved in the social media is uh, I coached more than 40 years ago, uh, more than 40 years ago. And I've been receiving over the last several years, um, Facebook, whatever, from you know, social media um, messages from kids that I coached 40 some years ago. Um, and what they talked about was really the essence of that reciprocity. They didn't talk about how well they did in swimming. They didn't talk about, they talked about how much they knew I cared about them. That, that, and that had the most powerful influence on them wanting to care about themselves and others. So to me, the, the essence of reciprocity, two things. One, don't use it, just do it. Because as soon as you start to use it, it becomes manipulation. And it's not about, okay, I'm gonna give to you, so therefore you will give to me. Know that that's just the way it is. Let it be, but do it from a place of, of giving, not getting. The getting will come. Um, and But it, by just putting it out there because you deeply care about each person rising to their potential, you care about them overcoming their fears, breaking through their fears. And, and I, it was really a powerful thing to receive these, these messages from kids I haven't coached in 45 years and that I didn't remember what I had done. I remember them, but I didn't remember, I remember just coaching, but somehow in that process of coaching, I was igniting that reciprocity simply because I genuinely, deeply, and uh, lovingly cared about them. I wanted them to rise to their potential. So Brian, I've, I've heard you speak about the spirit before and, and the spirit within people and, and, and how you, you train the spirit um, to become resilient, to become tough, to become um, an overcomer in adversity, because there is something I think which is embodied over time, which transcends physical pain. I certainly transcend physical pain when I do ultramarathons, when I, when I was in the gym this morning, when I row um, through, through, through podcasts or through trying to disconnect my body brain kind of um, pain, no susception. Could you speak to sort of training the spirit within the domain of sport and how you, how you do that? Well, the first thing, the starting place to me is to understand something that many people may, when I first say it, they'll go, oh yeah, that makes sense. But we don't actually live it. And that is that energy is a choice. Most of us think of our energy more like the way we think about the weather. It's kind of like, gee, I hope the weather's great for that, you know, that hike we're going on this weekend. Isn't that the way we often think about our energy? Hope I have enough energy to make it through the holiday season this year. Hope I have enough energy to get through that workout and still keep my eyes open the rest of the day. But the starting place to understand is that your energy is not like the weather. Your energy is a matter of choice. And, when you, and here's why it's so important to your spirit to understand that about energy, because to our children, to our customers, to our teammates, to anyone we care about having a really major positive impact in our life, our energy is our example. Our energy is our spirit in action. It's our spirit portraying who we really are. And so a starting place to really impact uh, the spirit is to really help people understand that, that their energy is a choice and how to cultivate a better choice. Um, I often talk about, look at your energy on a 10-point scale. Simple as, simple as power. On a 10-point scale, one is comatose, 
10 is a child on Christmas morning. 10 is the way you feel when you just finished the best ultra marathon of your life. Your body is going ow, but your mind is going, yes, I did it. So once you've got that simple context, here's the powerful question. I call it the trillion dollar question. It is a life-changing, family-changing, you-changing question. When you think about that energy scale from one to 10, where have you been living your life? Woo, that's a great question. And whatever that number that popped in your head, I've been living at a seven, that is nothing more than your E or spirit habit. It's the way that you are using a couple of key things to develop that number. If you used it to develop that number, you can change how you use them to raise it to a higher number. And is your energy source, your spirit source. The two keys to elevating energy. Number one is movement. Change the way you move. If you want to move your life, you got to move yourself. Simple as that. The instant that you smile, the instant that you look up and open your eyes, the instant that you change your body, you rise on that 10-point scale. It's, we're wired that way. You cannot fake it. It's automatic. So one way to start to elevate your spirit is to add a little bit more movement in your life on a regular basis. And I love what you said about those, about sometimes we feel like I, I've done a lot of long distance running as well, some marathon running. And there are days we feel like we've woken up and through the night we were actually sleeping in cement that dried around our legs. And we start running and the cement is, those became, when your spirit and your energy soar, those become in some ways the best days. Because you know there's going to be good ones on the other side. But when you, when you make it through those days, uh, when your legs feel like lead, when you feel like your body, when you don't want to, when it's cold and rainy and you don't want to get out there, those are the days where your spirit soars. Those are the days where you, you feel the sense of, wow, that was fantastic. What a fun workout, even though it, it hurt. Um, so the number one way to affect your spirit and your energy is to change the way you move. The second is what we talked about before, and it's the most important key of all, and that's purpose. Um, when your purpose is strong enough, you'll find the how, as we said, you'll find your spirit. Um, and a great way to, to start to, to practice working towards your spirit and working towards your purpose is just ask every morning, what am I truly grateful about in my life? What am I truly grateful about in my life? What you're grateful about will focus you on your priorities. Your priorities will lead you to purpose. Your purpose will lead you to spirit. Listen, that's powerful, Brian. Uh, it's absolutely powerful and I can't really add to that at all other than say actually everyone I've interviewed so far from special forces soldiers to critical care practitioners to sports people and other high-performing professionals they all say Brian that you know that, that positivity is a superpower and that that positivity is a active decision and you're, the jumping off point quite rightly as you say is is a spirit of gratitude and is being grateful for what for for what you have and then that that transports you into a positive mindset which you can carry through irregard irrespective of of feeling there was a book that was written uh, not an easy book to read it's like a textbook called power versus force but what the book is essentially about was it actually took a, was written by a man who for 25 years sought to measure the frequency, the vibration, the electrical vibration of emotions. Um, and he did that through muscle testing. But he did it for 25 years. And we're talking about a massive accumulation of data. And what he found, Owen, is what we just talked about. 
the emotion that has the highest vibration, the highest frequency is gratitude. So truly, when you are in an attitude of gratitude, there is no room for sadness. There is no room for, for negative emotions, which have much lo lower vibrations. And so when you, when you come from that place of gratitude, when you come from a place of possibility rather than limit, it says the past does not equal the future. There's always a way when you're committed. These sort of foundational beliefs about possibility are enervating, they're lifting, they're joyous, they're, they're what allow you to turn that positivity into a superpower. Um, it's not blind positivity. I, I've, I've spent a lot of my life loving reading biographies. Um, I always have a fascination about what makes people tick. And these are people from sport, from, from world affairs to um, you name it, to, to entertainment. Um, and if there's one one ingredient that all mix into their lives at a high level more than any other it is optimism or positivity but it's optimism that says no matter what's going on i can change no matter what's going on i can improve no matter what's going on i can learn people who say no you know i i'm just in a cycle it's just going to be on a cycle to me are missing out on the superpower of positivity because they're not recognizing that instantly Something could change and you could, you could have a new idea that changes the whole trajectory of your life. Brian, could you speak to humility as a superpower mm. as well? Because I've seen humility used and it's such, a, uh, it's such a force to be reckoned with because used in the right way and used for, for good and in a very vulnerable and honest and open way it can absolutely disarm and disable negativity and this spirit of retribution sort of a spirit of vengeance and that just might be in a conversation might be in an argument might be institutionally um between warring warring factions of a of an institution depart into departmental but could you speak to the utility of humility and how we can use it to really bring about harmony I love that. And, and I think to me, this is perhaps one area that needs more focus right now than ever before in my life. I, I've seen less humility um, in our public figures, um, much more uh, focus on reputation rather than character. So first of all, what humility is not. Many people equate humility to confidence. And that is a mistake. You can be tremendously confident and very humble. Because being humble doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It means you think of yourself less. But the real beauty and power of, of, of honest and authentic, and you can't fake humility, is that only those who are humble are lifelong learners. Because only those who are humble always believe that they can learn more, can get better. And so when you come from that place, you live with a, a, a perspective that says, if things are to change, I must change that your first place when you look at when you miscommunicate, when something's not working, when there's friction, when um, when you feel like uh, things aren't going the way you want to do. The first place you look is inside that. What am I doing that I could get better at? And to me, that is the disarming right there, because as soon as you come from that place, people don't feel that push. They don't feel that pushback. They don't feel that. That, and it's how we move from ego to we go. And to me, um, to be humble is to understand that it's amazing what's accomplished when nobody cares who gets the credit. 
See, credit is something you give. Responsibility is something you take. And when you live with that belief and you live humbly, what happens is eventually it'll all come all the way around, right? And your reputation, your character will become one. So I, I, I carry with me um, almost always a little, a little stone that has the word humility on it because I want to rec- help people immediately feel, as you said, disarmed. And that means they don't want to push back. They don't feel like you're trying to beat them or better them. You're just seeking to be your best rather than the best. That kind of humility is, is something I want to I want to bring to help people rediscover in this world. I want our children to re- learn it rather than puffing themselves up. Let's let's lift each other up. Let's look to uh, it's OK to make a mistake. All right. It's OK to make an error if you're humble, because then you're asking yourself, how can I do better tomorrow? It's really powerful, actually, Brian, because what, what, what the, it notions towards is instead of a commitment to being right, it's a commitment to shared learning and individual learning, whereby you're right. There's no, it's not difficult to step down, hopefully. Well, it is, but whether it's not difficult to step down in the right mindset when it's around, okay, well, I'm learning here. And if, if I, I, I'm a true seeker and the truth is 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 not about whether I look good or come come away good from this, whether I'm right or wrong. It's about shared learning, and it's about it's it's about a togetherness. So it's about it is. it's about reaching that shared endpoint. And actually, just in in debates I've been involved with, having a prior commitment to the truth and to commit to this debate that I will, if if I am wrong. I will not shy away from that because I actually want to get to the truth of the matter, not just to be right. You nailed it when you said it's not about having to be right. Humility is I'd rather be in love than have to be right. Um, and that is a very, very, very important uh, transformation that we need. It, it, it gets to the other side of the most destructive word in the language of teams, families and communities. And that word is the word blame, B-L-A-M-E. And there is a reason why blame is so destructive to relationship. And it comes from ego rather than we go. It comes from, I have to be right. Um, and therefore, if, I'm, if you're questioning I'm right, then you must be wrong. And the challenge is, oh, and when you think about blame in the context of time, is blame about the past, the present, or the future? Always about the past. Yeah, always. So... Whenever you find yourself in the place of blame, where are you emotionally? You're in the past. Can you do anything about the past? No, it's, that's done. So as a blame buster and as a humble blame buster, what you do is you say, what, did, what happened? What can we learn? What will we do better now? And you shift that. And that's what someone can only do when they move from ego to ego. And they rather learn, rather get it right. See, you hit it so well because... When humble people would rather be wrong and learn from it than have to look good and be right. Brian, I heard you speak on a on a podcast recently in an interview, a really profound uh, piece of information, really, which is something I've had a revelation of recently, which is, you know, in preparation for interviews or assessments or presentations, really uh, presenting to a thousand people or more in, in a room, the hierarchy of 
truly integrating learning, Brian, is 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 not about reading it uh, verbatim from a screen or, or or flicking the page and reading it. It's about integrating it through hearing, seeing, doing it throwing that information out into a community, having a plenary discussion, wrestling with the information, wrestling with the problem, writing the problem down, having, in, in essence, Brian, my revelation is involving community in the problem because they will unlock areas of the problem and or information that you've never seen before. And it won't, it, you won't get that from revising or reading from a page. And I heard that from you a couple of weeks ago and it really stopped me in my tracks. And I wondered if you could speak to your personal revelation of interacting and integrating information. Well, that's great. I, I uh, just said it best, very simply. It said, when we hear, we forget. When we see, we're more likely to remember, but it's only when we do that we understand. And so uh, as an example, this, this is at the core of, of, of my style of, of presenting, of speaking, whether it's a keynote, whether it's a longer program, is that you can't win the game if you don't get in the game, all right? And so to get people off the sidelines and into the game, there's really two magical ways to, to really make that happen. Number one is the power of stories. Because, um, and this is, has to do with neuroscience, but essentially there's something that happens in great stories that's called neural coupling. And it has to do with mirror neurons. And what happens is, and you've, we've all experienced this, somebody's telling a story from their own life, from their own experience, from their family. And at a certain point, it's no longer their story. It's your story. You see your children, you see your experience, you see your challenges and your triumphs. And so that's one way to get, to get that feeling of, of I'm connected, which is what community is. So um, using the power of stories is so much more powerful than just spitting out the information. In fact, a study actually showed that when we, uh, when we communicate an idea, a message, a learning point via a story, rather than just express the same information as information, it is 22 times more connecting 22 times more powerful that is a big number that is a huge number so number one is stories number two i'm called america's breakthrough coach because i've had close to a million people get off the sidelines and into the game by doing i have them at the ends of my programs break through one inch thick boards karate style now it's not to create lumber it's not to create it's a metaphor first of all it's all about um, getting clear about what is this thing in my life that's holding me back? And, and they write on their board what that obstacle is. On the other side of the board, they envision what's waiting for me when I no longer am held back by that. Example, the first board I ever broke more than 30 some years ago, I wrote the word procrastination on the front of my board. Uh, it was procrastination about writing books. On the back of my board, I wrote freedom, abundance, and truth to my word. That when I actually broke through that which was ultimately just an expression of fear, because we only break through one thing. We break through from fear to love and faith. That's it. That when I did break through that procrastination, I would bring my family greater abundance. We'd have new freedoms and I'd be living my word every day. So everybody has this meaning to the breakthrough. But what's magnificent about it is that only when we do, is it real? And what's so fun about the experience is I don't care who you are, if you've never done this before, you don't know you can do it until you do it, which is what life is. 
It's not the board. It's the fear of what the board is. And so you have an experience of actually getting in the game. And, and the result of that is when people leave my events, they may not remember my name, but they remember themselves. They remember what it felt like to do something they didn't know they could do. And they emerge with a sense that says, maybe I can. Maybe I can break through with my teenager and actually have a conversation. Maybe I can lose that weight. Maybe I can work with those people that in the past I see them coming and I run the other way. And that's when we move from here to beyond sea to do. Brian, you speak really nicely, actually, around one of your teachers in your formative years, uh, Mr. Anderson, actually, uh, around the Pygmalion effect he had on you in your earlier years, around bringing, bringing the best out in you and speaking not only truth to you, but actually in instilling a, a, a sense of a reciprocity in, in, in essence, but just this Pygmalion effect being uh, something where, which speaks to your own inner values and, and, and causes you to rise up to those expectations. Could you maybe unpack the Pygmalion effect and what Mr. Anderson truly did for you? Absolutely. And in many ways, this, this topic right here, encompasses many of the things we've discussed throughout this conversation. So the Pygmalion effect, um, which comes from the Greek myth about Pygmalion, who poured himself into creating a statue of a woman um, out of loneliness, out of despair, and poured every ounce of his, of his essence into this creation. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, came along, fired an invisible arrow into the stone sculpture, and she became a living, breathing lady whose name was Galatea, and they lived happily ever after. Well, what that says is that it creates a metaphor of what we call the Pygmalion effect. And the Pygmalion effect says that our thoughts, our beliefs, and our expectations are magnetic. And the greater our influence on another, the more powerful the Pygmalion effect. So this is a vital concept for coaching, parenting, leading, and living, that we are absolutely affecting one another by the way we think about them even beyond what we might say. You know, the Banner study on communication looked at three elements of communication. There are three. There is body language. There is tonality, which is not what you say, but rather how you say it. And then there are words. And this study done many years ago and repeated came out the same way. 55% of communication has, has nothing to do with words. It's body language. 38% is not what you say, but how you say it. It's tonality. Only 8% are words. And so we are communicating the Pygmalion less through what we say than through our body language, which can't lie, all right, and through our tonality. And so um, we have a, we're already Pygmalions to everyone in our life because when we look at people, we see what we see. All right? And the only question is, are we a positive Pygmalion, a neutral Pygmalion, or a negative Pygmalion? I call the negative Pygmalions in our lives, they're people we think of as our energy vampires. They suck the energy out. We know they're going to find something wrong with us. Um, I also say, if you think you have an energy vampire, stop it, because it's not their energy. But Mr. Anderson was that positive, uh, uh, positive Pygmalion for me in my life. And he's still alive. He's in his 90s now. And... Um, one day he pulled me into his office as oh, I was a ninth grader. So a freshman uh, in high school. And um, 
he said, he set me down in a chair and he was the cool teacher. He was a teacher we all had who everybody liked him. He was always positive. He was always joking. He treated us like we were grownups rather than little kids. But he was really serious that day. He made me sit in a chair and he stood up above me, he crossed his arms and he looked at me and said, Brian, a student like you only comes along once every 10 or 15 years. Uh, and when he said it, Owen, it was very likely he meant it bad more than he meant it good. Because I was just trying to be liked. All I cared about was approval. All I wanted to be, I was the class clown looking to find that inappropriate moment to say the inappropriate thing so the kids would like me and think I was funny. But somehow as a positive Pygmalion, he saw through that. And he said, the next words he said changed my life. He said, Brian, there's something special in you. Stop wasting it. He said, every day is a gift, but you and you alone determine if you'll open that gift. And son, you haven't even touched the wrapping paper. He said, live your life each day to make it a masterpiece. Pour your energy out. If you have gas in your tank at the end of the day, petrol in your tank, you did not play full out that day. And partly because of the influence you had, because I really, really loved him. I thought he was a great, great man, a great teacher. But he was such a strong Pygmalion. Um, the Pygmalion effect was actually... And it changed my life. I, I guarantee you, I never would have turned my grades around, which brought me to Stanford. Stanford made me figure out how to pay for Stanford. Right? So that made me, led me into coaching. That took me in a career. It took me to my wife and my children. It took me to this show today because of that one moment of a positive Pygmalion believing me in me more than I believed in myself. That is the power. Um, and it's, it's a, um, there was a researcher from Harvard by the name of Robert Rosenthal who actually verified and uh, legitimized the power of the Pygmalion effect. Uh, he did a study with first graders, went to 25 elementary schools, about 500 children, went to the first grade classrooms and told the teachers and only the teachers that he had developed a test for first graders that would identify for the teachers which of the children were what he called spurters. And a spurter was a child with incredible potential, but who had not used it yet. And so this test would identify that for the teachers. So uh, administered the test, 25 schools, 500 kids, gathered the tests. A week later, he came back to the classroom and told the teachers and only the teachers the scores on the test and said, you know, that Owen is a, is a spurter, that Carol is a spurter, that Kelsey is a spurter. Told the teachers who had scored as spurters. But it was a big fake. He had never graded anything. He had found a very basic first grade intelligence test, administered the test, picked up the papers, burned them, never looked at one of them. So completely randomly, he told the teachers who were spurters. Over 97% of the students who were randomly selected as spurters, spurted. They rose to the top of the class and stayed there. And why? Here's the key to the Pygmalion effect. Who changed? The teachers. The teacher no longer looked at Owen as Owen. When they looked at Owen, they saw that potential. Brilliant study. He got sued for it. And, and those, those who sued him were the parents of the other children who the teachers looked at as if they weren't spurters. So we're all Pygmalions. The question is, what kind? And when we start to work on the way we look at people, rather than judging and looking for what's wrong, to look more for what's right, what's their gifts, what's their uniqueness, what's their, what's their beliefs, who are they? That's when we become the truly positive Pygmalion, as Mr. Anderson was for me. So Brian, you speak to another anecdotal story around... Um, when Jimmy Carter, the former 
United States president was on a plane it was either yourself or a colleague I can't quite recall it was me yeah it was yourself and he was shaking hands with everyone uh, down the plane um and in essence, bringing the best out of everybody. Now, I call this Jimmy Carter handshake the, the, the good morning principle. And what the, the principle of good morning is that you being the first mover to wish someone good morning is very difficult for them to be in a stoic sense, not wish you good morning back. So if I want to, dick, even if it's just a, a brief encounter with someone, I have to be the first mover to say, good morning, and or bring the hand out and shake the hand. But in the same essence and in the same spirit, Jimmy Carter was probably getting the absolute best out of everybody on that plane because he was the first mover in going informatively to everybody, shaking their hand, just wanting to introduce himself to, 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 to the entire plane. And, and as a subsequence, getting the best out of everybody as, as a result. Could you speak to being the first mover uh, and, and getting the best out of people from a sort of a deep psychological reciprocity circuit or indeed a deep psychological tool of just wanting to model back what pe- to what people are modeling to you? I, I love that. Uh, that's a, I, I'm going to remember that, the good morning principle. I've never heard it put that way before. Um, much of what I, what I talk about, believe in, leads to a, a great life, maximum influence, maximum humility, is to focus on controlling your controllables. Um, and ultimately, what are the controllables that make the biggest difference? Uh, one is to shape your future, is to focus on what you, who you want to be. Um, the next is to energize and engage your team. Um, and your team is all of humanity. That's where the good morning principle really comes alive, is to, and it, to energize and engage. It doesn't say to receive energy, but here's the simple truth. Whenever you seek to enrich another person's experience, you can't help but enrich your own because of that reciprocity, because of that, what you put out, especially energetically, fills those, fills those around you and comes right back around and, and fills you with more. So it's an up, it's how we create the upward spiral. And so coming from that place, the last part is um, to build people, build teams and build relationships. And those are the three, what I call controllables, meaning their choices. Um, and so the, the key to the good morning effect is a choice, is to say, I seek to give. I seek to, I, I don't have to do this. So many people in life are absolutely burdened by two words, have to. When you think about it in life, what do you have to do? You have to die. Everything else is a matter of choice. And yet, when we were little children, we learned the words have to with two other words attached to it. And those words were, or else. You have to do this now or else you're going to get a, a spanking. You have to do this now or bad things will happen. As we, and that's important when we're little kids to keep us safe. But as we get older, that or else may disappear on the outside. But on the inside, whenever we say to ourselves, I have to do something, whenever we have somebody say, when we say it out loud that I have to do something, the or else is still there subconsciously. Right? And that or else creates a pushback. But when we change that to I like to, choose to, can't wait to, want to, I'm excited to, what happens is we transform um, our, our 
our approach. We become the person who automatically, naturally, without seeking anything in return, says good morning first, who reaches out first. And we don't do it to race. We don't do it to be first. We do it because we choose to live our lives in a direction of building people, building teams, building relationships, and energizing and engaging those around us. Because we know that whenever we do those, we can't help do the same to ourselves. So Brian, could you speak to, I've heard you speak powerfully into the, into the essence of now and entering into now. Um, and I think, you know, in the soundbite generation whereby we judge our reality by either coutured or altered soundbites of another person's reality, um, it's quite delusional actually. And it, and it actually is a misconception of, uh, that you know, one of my one of my key sayings is around you know that comparison is the thief of joy, and and not to compare because it will automatically steal joy. Yet you know we're scrolling through comparison pages upon comparison pages within within social media. Could you speak to your circuit breakers to get you back to the power of now? You know, the single most important principle that I believe in and teach is what I say, another way of putting that is to, to be fully present. I call it the gift. Uh, what does that mean? When you're fully present, 100% of your mind, body, and spirit is actually with the person you're with where they are now. Now, how many of us have ever been with somebody where you know their body's present, but the rest of them is definitely in another county. They're somewhere else. And here's the key question to ask. How does, it make we, how does it make us feel when someone we wish to be fully present with us is not fully present with us? How does it make us feel when somebody we really want to connect with is obviously more interested at looking at the sports result on their cell phone than they are at really connecting, listening? Um, for some people, it makes them angry. For some, it just makes them sad and small. But for everyone I've ever known, when there's somebody we wish to be fully present with us and they're not fully present with us, it makes us feel worthless. It makes us feel insignificant and unimportant. So here's the gig. I believe that every one of us are leaders. We are what I call breakthrough leaders, that how we show up every day is an act of leadership. How we deal with adversity, with challenge, with change is an act of leadership. Our impact on others is our leadership. We can't fake it. We are self-leaders. And our job as leaders, as breakthrough leaders, comes down to one fundamental job, and that is to help the people that we lead, that we serve, that we love, that we're in community with, to know they're important, to know they're significant, to know that they matter and can make a difference. Because when people feel they're important, that they matter, they rise to an oh yeah. And when they feel unimportant, they fall to an oh no. And the only way that you can help people feel important, and ultimately, you can only build trust from this fundamental, is to be fully present. Because you can't fake it. You know when you're with somebody if they're fully present or not, immediately, because of that 55% of body language, their eyes move, and you know that they're no longer with you. They're doing something else. But when you are fully present, every moment you are fully present, and it's not about being, no one's going to do it perfectly, but it's a magnificent a magnificent, compelling why. Um, I learned this most of all from my own children, who uh, it's a long story, and I know we're getting close to the close of the show. So, um, But in an essence, at a time in my life where I was so focused on myself, to the people I loved the most in the world, I was rarely really fully present. Even though I would be in the same room, my mind was worrying about where I was flying to or 
And one night when my daughters were eight and three, they're pretty brilliant. They came into my office when I could have been tucking them in, being present with them, telling them a story, being with them, letting them know how important they were. But instead I was reaching for the phone and they said to me, daddy, do you love your phone more than you love us? I felt the blade go in deep. You know, Emerson said, what you do scream so loudly, I can't hear a word you're saying. And I had been living my life as if my phone was a higher priority than my children. Well, that night, they changed my goal in life, the future I want to shape. My goal in life, still to this day, is to be fully present in every precious, what I call woo. A woo is a window of opportunity, which is every precious moment. And so when we are fully present, when we do that, couple of things happen. Number one, we build trust at a foundational level because we know that person is with us. And that gives us a sense of, a sense of, I can believe in you because you're right here with me, that reciprocity. Secondly, and even more importantly, it says to me, you're important, you matter, you count. All right. And so to me, the foundation of, of everything, I call it the secret behind the secrets, because there is no kindness without first, without first presence. There is no trust without presence. And there is no influence or even impact without being fully present. If every single person watching this show thinks about the people who have had the greatest impact on their life, I would guarantee you if there was one thing that was prevalent in every single one of them, it was that that person at key moments was present with them. And so that's the first aspect of, of the now. Uh, the, la the second is, uh, is kind of a, in the metaphor of a road in front of us. I look at each day we have a road in front of us. And many times in those days, I call those those woos, those windows of opportunity, we come to the exact same why in the road. One side goes off this direction, it says, as soon as. The other goes the other direction, it says now. Now, the truth is, as soon as looks easier. It's well lit. It's been repaved. Piece of cake. Now is twisty and turny, lights out, ruts all over the place. But let's put it simple and forever. If we choose the road called as soon as, which is what many people do about being present, well, as soon as I get ahead, then I'll pay attention. If we choose the road called as soon as, it's a direct road to never. It leads to perpetual procrastination. So choose the now. If there's people you haven't expressed your gratitude to, do it now. If you've been living at level six on your 10-point energy scale, change your movement, focus on purpose, change it now. If you've been using your memory to see instead of your vision to see, you can change it now. And now is the only place where we move forward in our lives. Brian, listen, that's a fantastic place to land the conversation. I think it's a profound place to land the conversation as well. And what I would love to do, actually, is get you back on the podcast because I have a million more questions to ask. But we'll, we'll save that for around two, if that's okay. I would love it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I will say... I've been on many, many podcasts, and you're probably the most fully present host of anyone. You really take it in, and that's what creates great conversation. And it gives a gift to those that you're interviewing to, to take them to a deeper place maybe than they've gone before. Thank so thank you, you. Brian. Thank you. That's really that's a real honor to to hear that. Um, so listen, we'll just we'll, we'll share some of um, your books in the in the in the show notes and also uh, the links hyperlinks to 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 your website and to your YouTube uh, videos as well because they're absolutely fantastic. But it just leaves me to say a deep and heartfelt thank you, and I'd love to have you back on. 
I, I loved every moment. Thank you so much. Uh, remember to enjoy every precious woo.